0: Ben Jarofsky Show for this Tuesday, June 13th, starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back a guest to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Been gone for a while, but now he's home. Ben's talking to political strategist and campaign manager, Andrew Ellison. The Ben Jarofsky Show brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader chicagoreader.com for everything there is to know in the city of chicago where to go what to do what to eat what to drink and so much more it's all there including more stuff from ben jarofsky head on over chicagoreader.com forward slash jarofsky that's j-o-r-a-v is in victory s-k-y
1: Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Think It's Legit Tuesday, and here's why. Yes, Think It's Legit. It's a uh, it's a phrase that's been in my mind for many, many years, and it popped into my head because I read a really great column by Neil Steinberg uh, in uh, yesterday's uh, Chicago Sun-Times, and I kept it around. Uh, and uh, the headline is, Democrats Need to Wake Up. Neil Steinberg, of course, columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times, been the columnist for, for a long, long time. A very good writer, Neil Steinberg. Anyway, so the theme of the article, the theme of the column is a point that I completely, as anybody listens to the show know, I completely and 100% agree with. It's summarized by that headline, Wake Up Democrats. In particular, this notion that somehow or other, there are rules that govern politics today. There are rules that Republicans and Democrats follow. It's out the window, and you should know that. It, by the way, has not existed in this entire century. My distinguished guest, who's waiting to come up, uh, talk to me, Andrew Ellison, a young man. I don't believe these rules have ever existed during Andrew's lifetime, and he—I know he's been about the his lifetime encompasses the century, so they haven't existed this entire century. The notion one that the the loser. Uh, will concede to the winner. Throw that out the window. That's the most basic elementary one. When it's over, you concede to the winner. Well, Donald Trump didn't concede in 2020. He lost, but he claimed he won. He tried to stage an insurrection uh, based upon that fact. He failed at at that insurrection. And yet, that notion that somehow or other, Donald Trump won an election that he lost, is a motivating factor in the 2024 presidential election, particularly on the Republican side. And Democrats are going to have to confront this issue. We're going to be talking about this with Andrew Ellison. Democrats are going to have to confront this issue. As they get closer and closer to it, how much do you concede to the Republicans? Like, when Donald Trump just blatantly lies constantly? How much do you just concede to them? Like, okay, I'm not going to argue this point because he continually lies about it. Well, once you if you concede any part of that, you, of course, have moved the discussion further to the right, further from the truth. I don't think you can concede an inch of it. All right, right now, Donald Trump is making up lies in regards to presidential papers. You know, he's saying that Barack Obama kept, like, what was it, 33 million pages of paper, some outrageous number. It's not even true. He just made it up. So yeah, every step of the way, you have to confront that lie. So this notion that the old rules still exist should be out the window, and Democrats have to realize that, unless they want to get their clock clean again. And here's the quote that I really uh, appreciated from Neil Steinberg. Wake up. Liberal do-gooders are constantly calling upon values that just aren't there. Remember former Alderman Leon Dupre nicknamed the conscience of the city council? Patty Bowlers, notoriously corrupt council colleague, once said to him, Leon, the trouble is you think this whole thing's on the square. I heard that quote originally. The version I heard of that quote was from Jay McMullin. It's a name that's forgotten in Chicago politics, but Jay McMullen for years was the city hall reporter for the Chicago Daily News, a paper that's gone out of existence. He later married Jane Byrne, was the first husband for the city of Chicago. He was Jane Byrne's husband and chief political strategist uh, when she was elected uh, president, sort of like a a bedroom strategist, you might say. Anyway, he goes, these (laughs) these people think this is on the legit. They think it's legit. That's what Jay McMullen would say. It's legit. They think it's legit. And that is like something that Chicago journalists have had to deal with all like for as long as I can remember. You know, like the powers that be in the city will say something just as nutty as something Donald Trump would say, like selling the parking meters is a good idea. An asset worth 10 billion selling it for 1 billion is a good idea. So the notion that something is legit, that is something we have to struggle with because it's not legit. They're not playing fair. Like when they said the they want to sell the parking meters to raise money for the city to avoid taxes. They acted like that was like a legit proposal. It wasn't a legit proposal. They didn't give any thought to it. They didn't do any study, any research. All these reporters scurrying around to, to come up with evidence that there's something legitimate about the proposal. The the biggest example in my lifetime goes back to 1988 or 1987 when William Bennett said Chicago had the worst public school system uh, in the nation. William Bennett, secretary of education for Ronald Reagan, a right wing operative. Now a Trumpster. And suddenly Chicagoans are like, oh, my God, is this true? And they start doing it now, never thinking that it was just some political statement by a Republican hack. And by the way, we've been using that quote ever since. Mayors use it to try to show how much they've improved the system. See, we're not the worst in the country anymore. You never were the worst in the country. It was like a Trump-like statement from a before-Trump existed Trumpster. It wasn't legit. So anyway, Democrats do need to wake up. Great column by Neil Steinberg in the Sun-Times. The old rules do not apply anymore. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring on my distinguished guest. It's been a long, long time since he's been on the show. One of my uh, favorite number crunchers, political strategists, political analyst, uh, Andrew Ellison, the pride and joy of Kokomo, Indiana. Welcome back, Andrew.
2: Thank you for having me on, Ben. It's always a pleasure.
1: Yes, and I want to give a shout out before we get started uh, to Alderwoman. Uh, Lenny Uh In a previous existence, uh, Lenny was an activist for uh, Indivisible uh, Illinois, I think it was. Lenny, don't get me. I know I, there's Indivisible Chicago, Indivisible Illinois, I always get them mixed up, Lenny. I apologize in advance for probably mixing it up. Uh, but Lenny turned me on to so many smart and um, dedicated, activists and strategists from across the state of Illinois and Indiana. Uh, And one of them was uh, this young man, Andrew Ellison, uh, who came on the show uh, to talk about map making, gerrymandering. He's a total political geek. And I say that with the highest respect on our show. We teasingly say he's the Steve Karnacki of the Ben Jarofsky show uh, because he knows the map probably as well as Karnacki at MSNBC. He just doesn't get paid the same amount of money. But one day Andrew Ellison will be a media star, Lenny, and you will have had a, a role, a hand in playing that. So thank you, Lenny, for hooking me up with Andrew. All right, Andrew, let's get down to business. So much to discuss. Uh, let's just start with why you haven't been on the show in so long. And it's because you were very busy. And in the 20, what was it? I'm losing track of time. 2022 election cycle. You were working for a Senate campaign, a state Senate campaign in Michigan. Uh, that was successful and was part of the complete conversion. We were talking about this briefly, the complete conversion of Michigan of Michigan, from a Republican state to now. I don't know, Andrew, I, I'd say right now that uh, Michigan is a Democratic state. Uh, and, Andrew, you were part of that conversion. So talk a little about the Senate campaign you ran and the conversion of Michigan to where it is now. It's like a blueprint for other states to follow.
2: Absolutely. Uh, I had the pleasure of working for uh, Veronica Kleinfeld. She was the Senate, the Democratic Senate nominee for the 11th Senate District in Michigan. That region is most of central and south central Macomb County. That's the northeast suburbs of Detroit. Then we got a little sliver of Detroit just south of 8 Mile, about 10,000 people. That district historically has tracked very closely with the statewide performance of Democratic candidates. So Donald Trump won it in 2016, for example, but our 2018 statewide candidates for governor and attorney general and then Biden in 2020 were narrowly winning it by about a point. So there was a Republican incumbent, Michael McDonald, who had been there for four years. Um, Not a strong brand, but just kind of a generic Republican incumbent. And we needed to flip, uh, to my recollection, three seats in the Senate to tie the chamber. We had 16 seats, uh, there were 38 total. So you need 19 to tie, 24 an right majority. And this was one of the seats that we needed to flip, a Republican incumbent in a Democratic district. Veronica was a longtime institution in Southern Macomb County. She had served in many elected offices at the local level. And she had a really good personal brand. Um, you know, it's a very working class district. And so you need to just be a sensible person, a person of the people who has no problem just walking up and talking to anybody on the street and Veronica had that in spades. So uh, she was an excellent candidate to work for, we ran a really hard, you know, grassroots campaign, uh, lots of paid canvassers, lots of canvassers from other organizations that came in for us, Carpenters Union, League of Conservation, Voters, things like that. And we ended up defeating Uh, Michael McDonald by a bit over five points. He was the only Republican Senate incumbent who lost their uh, reelection last year. So um, we were really proud of the campaign that we ran there. Uh, A lot of it was what Veronica did. A lot of it is what the campaign did. And a lot of it was driven by the statewide environment that we were operating in, where Republicans nominated um, crackpots, for lack of a better word, for governor and attorney general and secretary of state all three of the candidates for those races were just not not top-shelf material, for, for a, a way to put it. So they dragged the whole ticket down with them, and Gretchen Whitmer was winning our district probably by like 10 points or so. And so that creates a really good, you know, rising tide lifts all boats situation. That really helped us. And the other big thing that really helped with Democratic turnout especially— was that we had a constitutional amendment on the ballot. There were several, but one of them was an amendment that was codifying Roe v. Wade into the state constitution to protect abortion access in Michigan. So when the Dobbs decision came down, it wasn't a certainty that that was going to be on the ballot, they were working on it. But when the Dobbs decision came down last summer, there was a huge push throughout the entire state to gather tens of thousands of signatures to get this on the ballot. And I think it ended up Succeeding at the ballot by somewhere between 20 and 25%. It was a blowout. And making abortion access central to the campaign at the statewide level and having that drive everything down ballot was a real boon to Democrats because Democrats are the party that stand up for women's health care rights, uh, abortion access in particular. So I think that Michigan is a good blueprint for Democrats in the coming year. You know, we're going into a presidential election. Abortion is still like a live wire issue in this country, especially for a lot of women. And I think that Michigan provides the model for Democrats to run on this at the national level and make it clear to people that lives are at stake. This policy is, the the outcome of this policy is gonna be determined by which party is in power. At the national level, which party is going to fight for women's health care access at the national level. So I think it would be very wise for Democrats to study the Michigan model, learn from that and try to apply it at the national level, wherever they can.
1: All right. So if I have three takeaways from Michigan and ladies yeah. and gentlemen, let me just say this. Democrats now con- uh, control in Michigan, governor, attorney general, secretary of state and both houses of the legislature. Just pause and think about that. That was a state that went for Donald Trump in 2016. All right. So I know there's a lot of despair in the world, uh, in the democratic world these days. And I truly believe uh, that Neil Steinberg is correct when he says Democrats need to wake up, but it's not completely hopeless. Democrats just think about uh, Michigan. All right. One,
2: One accent to that, just because I don't want us to underrate that too much. Democrats flipped the state house in Michigan For the first time since 2010, they'd been in the wilderness there for a dozen years. It was the first time we'd flipped the Michigan Senate blue since 1983. It had been 40 years that Democrats had been in the wilderness there. So this was an especially historic election that we had there.
1: All right. And I have three takeaways from what uh, your riff at the opening, Uh, Andrew. The three takeaways in terms of the blueprint uh, that might work in other states. And uh, no particular order. I wrote these down. One, abortion rights, access to abortion. Uh, It's a pivotal issue, absolutely, since the Dobbs decision. Uh, Two, crackpot opponents, which I call MAGA, which is where the Republican Party is at now. We're going to get into that a little while later. And then the third, quality, strong local candidates with roots uh, in the local community that's Definitely been the case here in Illinois. I've seen, uh, like with Lauren Underwood, who has strong roots uh, in her congressional district where she grew up, et cetera, and so forth. Is there anything else you would add to that list of important elements uh, in the blueprint?
2: Donating money to local candidates. I will say that uh, one of the great struggles of serving as a manager on this campaign was the fundraising apparatus end of it. I knew going in that it's normal that a lot of people will give to like the presidential level; they'll give to Senate and to Congress, but they don't necessarily think about state legislative races as much, or even at the local city level. We had several reporters come in to interview our campaign. We we were nationally viewed. We had the New York Times, Washington Post. Um, I think Politico came in at one point. There were there were all these people coming in, and one of the things that we talked about, one of one of the reporters uh, that was focused on the beat was focused on the fact that fundraising isn't as big of a focus at the legislative level nationally as it is for these other races. And your dollars go further on these legislative races than they do for Congress, because Congress, you bring in millions of dollars in these competitive races, whereas the legislative level, one, you just If you donate to people at the local level, you're more likely to know them. You can have more sway over them if you want to focus on a particular policy issue, but because there are a few donations coming in, your donation goes a lot farther at that level and there are a lot fewer voters to sway. So it gets much more mileage. So I think that a push toward more political donations at the state and local level, as opposed to the federal level where it's a wash in money at this point. I think that that's a huge reckoning that Democrats are going to have to have in the coming years because the the states are the laboratories of democracy. And as things become calcified at the federal level, we have to be playing. It's a game of inches in states like Wisconsin and Michigan, uh, Illinois and Indiana are pretty set. But these these toss up states, it, it has redounding effects. What happens in the state legislature, as we saw with the attempts to decertify the Electoral College votes in 2020 that can have federal implications. And so making sure that we're donating at the state level and working on these state legislative races is so critical, sometimes even more than uh, some of these individual congressional races.
1: We'll get into this when we discuss Wisconsin. Uh, there's some uh, lessons, mm-hmm. very important lessons about uh, down ballot but, uh, issues. Folks, this is, this there's strategy to this, you know? I mean, it's, you just can't go into it blind Dems, okay? got to... Remember, wake up, but be thinking while you're awake. All right. Uh, Let's talk about the crackpot issue. Uh, And um, you said, for lack of a better word, they were crackpots. I smiled when you said that, but the reality, that's kind of where MAGA is these days. Uh, And MAGA seems to be going even further. Uh, So this brings us up to the Republican primary, presidential primaries. We're heading into uh, 2024 presidential cycle. How far do you think MAGA will follow Donald Trump? And as we, I say this uh, as Donald Trump is about to be arraigned uh, in Miami uh, for um, the case of uh, hoarding government documents, classified government documents. So uh, get into that. How far will MAGA follow Donald Trump?
2: So I don't have the poll in front of me. I'm kind of working off memory, but I believe it was Ipsos had a poll uh, that they did recently. Mm -hmm. Um, asking Republican voters, are you only considering Trump? Are you considering Trump along with other Republican candidates? And are you uh, only considering people other than Trump? Are you done with Trump? I think they found that about 28% were only Trump. They're not going to consider anybody else. Uh, And I think it was 24, it might have been 26, but I think it was 24% said they wouldn't consider Trump. They'll consider anybody but him. And then you've got this other half of the party that's considering everybody. So uh 28% of the Republican Party, you might think of that as kind of low, like his base is like not anywhere close to majority. It's kind of an indictment of everybody else in the field, too, because you've got a responsibility to consolidate behind one anti-Trump figure. And if you've got a dozen other people running, that makes it really difficult to take him on in that respect. I think the fact going to your question that there's 28% of people. the party they're just die hard ride or die maggot trump um i think it's concerning for democracy i think it's concerning that given everything we've seen over the last eight years let alone over the course of his entire life that like this is the cause that you're going down with um i i don't i don't think it's healthy for democracy i don't think it's healthy for society uh i'm not surprised that you have that situation i think you could probably find Twenty-seven or twenty-eight percent of the public can believe anything if you pitch it, but um, it's it's disappointing. I I don't think there's any case of violence right now. You know, there wasn't at his first arraignment, and I doubt that there will be today. But I kind of worry sometimes—not to be alarmist—but I I do worry sometimes about the threat of uh, some low-level sectarian violence here and there over time. So uh, I guess we just kind of have to see how it plays out. But I think that this group of people. You know, I've, I've got the footage in the background. It's these are ride or die people. And and I'll say that, like, Trump isn't going to go away in the next few years. One time when I was driving around town around here, I like in the last year or two, I saw somebody with a Nixon Agnew uh, plate on the front of their truck. I'm thinking, like, in 50 years, I'm going to be driving around. I'm going to be seeing somebody with a with a Trump license plate. This this man is never going to leave the cultural mind for the rest of my life. He's always going to be around in a way. So. Um, And and these are the kinds of people that are going to keep his legacy going for the next 50 or 60 years.
1: So in terms of uh, local races, in terms of Senate races, in terms of congressional races, this 28% will probably be the most active, vibrant part of the Republican Party. And that means they will probably have a significant role in nominating the candidates who go up against the Democrats, that could help the Democrats. It's a scary proposition, as you just pointed out, you know, because if the Democrats go back to being asleep, uh, the crackpots could win. On the other hand, there's such extremists who could help a more uh, the Democratic Party win, even in swing districts, as you were alluding to in Michigan, correct?
2: That's correct. The candidates that they had up in Michigan last year, there was a whole other issue where like five different candidates got knocked off the ballot for like fraudulent signatures on the ballot. And so they got left with a slate of five people. Like one was a January 6th attendee. One was like a hardcore mega guy. It was not the best. They, they picked the best out of a bad bunch. But the candidates that they selected who ended up getting through those primaries, Christina Caramo is their new Republican party chairwoman in Michigan. And she had a whole slew of controversial remarks that like Beyonce was like a Satan worshiper or something like that. And how like they, they were all very hardcore anti-abortion and they, they have to chase after that mega crowd. They feel like they do. I don't know if they really need to as much going forward as Trump fades a bit, but throughout the Republican Party, throughout the entire country, except for small bits, um, they feel like they have to chase after that crowd and they have to take the most extreme position on every single issue or they'll be seen as insufficiently conservative.
1: Yeah, we saw that here uh, in Illinois. Darren Bailey was running against Pritzker. And to get the nomination, well, he is an extremist, so I don't know, he didn't go there, but he was already there. uh, And it hurt the party across the board. Uh, So that's one factor to consider, folks, as we head into 2024. And then um, the other factor, of course, what we talked about uh, is abortion. And um, is that still, as you see it, uh, a powerful issue that will motivate uh, uh, voters in 2024?
2: I think so. And I think the issue of abortion is especially salient in swing states. Uh, I think that it's the reason, like it's it's the explanation of why Democrats saw really strong performance in swing states like uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, relative to what you would expect in a Democratic president's midterm. You would expect that Democrats do very poorly. We did do a little poorly in states like New York and California and Oregon, where you have those normal midterm effects at play but abortion wasn't at risk because Democrats have already protected abortion rights in New York and California and Oregon. So it's not a live wire issue in those states. So they're more focused on other policy concerns. And it helped us because it, it refocused the minds in a lot of ways for a lot of Democrats at the federal level, but that cost us several congressional seats in New York and California when Democrats at the top of the tickets were running kind of complacent campaigns. You know, we only lost the House by five seats and that, you know, New New York alone could have cost us there. Whereas when you look at a state like Michigan, where it's literally on the ballot, do you want to protect abortion rights? It was a surge of movement in the direction of the Democratic Party because the issue was at stake there. Wisconsin has like an 1831 law, you know, ancient history at this point, banning all abortions in the state. And that's what they're operating under. And there's obviously a big push to try to get that overturned in Wisconsin because that's so damaging to the state. So I think, especially in swing states, it makes the most difference because people palpably feel, as as opposed to red states or blue states where they're pretty subtle on the issue in the swing states, they really feel the urgency of this issue in a day-to-day way. All
1: right, we're gonna get into that a little more. We talk about the three, uh, the important states uh, for the Dems. Uh, to hold on to the Senate, because when I just listen to what you're saying about uh, abortion rights, Ohio, Montana, Texas, you've already indicated those are the three states you're watching it, that will be an issue there. Before I leave and get to the Senate, though, I, I just want to follow up with uh, Trump, the crackpots. Uh, Right now, all the polls, as you were saying, show Donald Trump is ahead significantly uh, in the uh, Republican primary uh, for president to nominate nominate the Republican uh, candidate to go up against Biden. Just a reminder, we still have a ways to go before we get to the first election. Uh, Do you see a path for any of the challengers to Trump for that nomination, particularly Pence? And, Christy, I'm thinking of them right now off the top of my head. Do you see a path to victory for them to be the nominee? A path in
2: 2024, I do not. I think that Trump is a very central figure within the Republican Party. All discourse about the Republican Party at this point leads through Donald Trump. Nobody talks about the Bushes. Um, You know, when I was... Coming up in politics in 2011, 2012, there was this big nostalgic period for lost times. Democrats are talking big about Bill Clinton. Republicans were talking big about Ronald Reagan. Nobody's talking about Ronald Reagan anymore. I never hear people extolling his virtues. Nobody's talking about the budget. It's, it's all Trump all the time. And so naturally, he's going to be the pick just from inertia, like he's, he's being carried forward and the party faithful behind him. And there's no clear... Alternative to him for the nomination. I don't think Ron DeSantis is really going to go very far. I think that he's been a wildly overrated candidate. He has policy achievements to point to that are important, obviously, but he he has things to talk about. The issues that he's just not a very personable guy. Like when you watch video of Trump interacting with people, like just doing retail politics, he's one of the best retail politicians we've had. In the last at least half century, you just walk, like he's, he's very personable with whoever he's talking to. He knows he, his whole life is dependent on that business, like very transactional. like what is this person interested? How can I please them? How can I make them like me? And he knows that. And Ron DeSantis has always been kind of gated off. There's a reason that he' is holding his launch on Twitter instead of a like traditional, uh, event where people can like get hyped and cheer at you because he's always walled off from everybody else. So, I think when we get to the debates, I think DeSantis, he reminds me of Scott Walker in a way where he had a lot of hypothetical hype around him and he had like some big donors who, who backed him in his candidacy. But, um, I like when it comes to the personality and like does he have the charisma for it, I think he's just gonna weather. Uh, one, one other thing I will add, I think that Doug Burgum is actually a very underrated candidate. I might be going out on a limb there. You are. (laughs) Household name, Doug Burgum. Everybody knows who Doug Burgum is. Um, Doug Burgum just launched his campaign the last week or two. He's the governor of North Dakota. And I think back to how Republicans thought after the Nixon years, after Watergate, like like their, their brain is ruined. We need somebody who's like outside of D.C., outside of Nixon world. Or who's at least not caught up in all that and hw bush benefited because if i'm remembering right he was at the cia at the time i think and so he wasn't uh caught up it might have been another branch or something else um that he was caught up with, but he he
1: wasn't
2: yeah yeah so he wasn't caught up in a lot of the the partisan and political trappings at the time so he was able to kind of come back and be like you know i'm i'm old guard republican party but i wasn't caught up with all that craziness and i think that doug burgum is in a position to really benefit because like there is no media ecosystem nationally for North Dakota people. Like people are paying attention to stuff going on in New York every day. There's not a big siren coming out of North Dakota about all the big news coming out there. You look at South Dakota. Christy Noem she's spending more time outside the state than she is in. She's traveling all over the country, uh, trying to attend all these conferences, whip up right wing crowds. Doug Burgum has never chased the media in his eight his seven years as governor of North Dakota. He's in a place where the national spotlight isn't on him, and so he's been able to pursue sound governance, um, kind of like a business conservative thing, the religious angle wasn't really big for him. Just your typical Midwestern Republican who just wants to run a government well. And because he's avoided the national circus with Trump these whole eight years, I think at least as opposed to somebody like Pence, who got caught up in all that stuff, I think that Burgum has an agenda to sell that hasn't been caught up in the media circus of the last eight years. And so I don't think he can get the nomination, but I think he has a story to tell about himself in the wing of the Republican Party that he's coming from in a way that might set him up well for a future on 2028. And it's also worth noting that he's worth like $1.5 billion so he can bankroll his early operation wow. if he needs to. So I, I think he's not being adequately discussed. I think he will be in a few months, once the debates start going. And I think people are probably going to be a little impressed with him, but uh, that's just kind of my early spin on it. All
1: right, I'll file that away. Uh, But uh, as frightening as the prospect is uh, to democracy, uh, to have Donald Trump revival as the nominee of the Republican Party, uh, it will have an impact. Uh, There's also a, a downside to it in Republicans, an obvious downside. Uh, and uh, that could be reflected in the Senate state. So right now, uh, the Senate is fifty-one forty-nine uh, Democrats. There's a few independents who caucus with the Dems, so the Dems have the, uh, the upper hand. Um, 33 races are up for grabs in 2024, and most of those are Democratic-held. I think it's 23. I'm doing that off the top of my head. I should have written it down. Uh the vast majority of them are Democratic. And that generally means that the Democrats would be the um, would be the underdogs because you they have to hold on to those seats. Uh, that's just sort of the indication. And um, you had a different view when I uh, first approached you on this subject a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you think it's uh, your what did you how did you put it? Your uh, Uh, more bullish uh, on uh, the Democrats' chances in 24. Why don't you take the deep dive and explain why? In
2: 2012, 2011, 2012 is kind of when I started following like Senate races at the local level. This this is the class one Senate seats. It was the three classes because they're broken up into three two-year cycles. So these are the seats that were up in 2012 when Obama's run for election. And when I was following at the time, everybody was saying, we we held a very similar number of seats back then too. It was like 23, 24 seats. And everybody at the time was saying, you know, Democrats are doomed. They only have a three-seat majority. There's no chance that they could hope to hold that many seats in such a big year. And we ended up gaining two Senate seats because Republicans ran terrible candidates uh, about abortion like Todd Akin and Richard Murdoch in Indiana, Missouri. Um, There were some key retirements like Olympia Snow, that came through uh the less felicity so my point with that is this is why they play the game this is why the games are played you know at the outset we can say that things look very endangered but as the races play out we find out who the republicans are nominating if they nominate those so-called crackpots in certain key races if certain national events like a dobbs decision or a natural event of some sort things are always changing and it's impossible to predict until like right before the election what it's going to be about so in terms of the landscape of the map itself as you would noted i consider ohio montana and texas to be the three most important seats i'll preface by saying that west virginia is probably an automatic flip to the republican party just because uh, Joe Manchin, his approvals aren't super great, and also the Democratic Party has been collapsing there in recent years, so uh, they're, they're probably not going to be able to hold on to that seat. But in terms of the others, uh, Ohio, uh, Sherrod Brown is the incumbent Democratic senator there, John Tester is the Democratic senator in Montana. Both of them have pretty solid favorable ratings, um, and the environment is getting a little dicey for Democrats in those states as they've trended more Republican over the years but they're they're going to be kind of the final test of whether incumbency still matters in a red state like this can they overperform uh joe biden's numbers that he's probably going to get because he's probably going to lose both states so i think that both of them start out in a good position we'll have to see who gets nominated against them but i think they're both strong candidates and the other seat is texas uh you have ted cruz um who's up for re-election there so not the most popular incumbent. He's, he only got reelected by about two points four years ago or six years ago. And I think if Democrats put up a really strong candidate, Colin Allred as a congressman um, from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I believe, a uh, very strong candidate there, strong fundraising. I think he raised about $2 million so far on his launch day, so that was very good. Um, so I, I think that Ted Cruz could be endangered as a weak incumbent on top of Texas probably being in play at the presidential level because Democrats are probably going to invest tens of millions of dollars into the state. Uh, Trump only won it by five points in 2020. And so, as demographic change continues in the state, uh, it's going to open up the floodgates for presidential investment. And when you have that, uh, it's really going to fall apart for Republicans because you're going to be getting thousands, like it's not an exaggeration, thousands of field organizers throughout the state working to rally Democratic base voters to turn out for Joe Biden and for our eventual Senate nominees. So I think that those three states on the knife's edge, if we're looking at a 50-50 Senate, assuming West Virginia is gone, those are the three states that are really going to determine control of the Senate.
1: And also, uh, going back to the abortion issue, those are three states where abortion will play a pivotal role, correct?
2: Exactly. Montana is an interesting example of this because it is a state, it's a Western state and Western states are uh, typically very libertarian on cultural issues. And so even though Montana is a pretty Republican state, it is also a very pro-choice state. And so I would expect that John Tester will probably be running on the salience of the abortion issue, particularly because I'm not sure of what Montana's existing laws are on abortion and if the legislature and governor are trying to change them, but I would expect that John Tester would be pushing for codification of Roe v. Wade nationally, like in a federal law in his race and trying to run against Republicans on that. I would be surprised if he didn't. So that Montana race is definitely a good example of where uh, a national issue could have local implications that could be helpful to us more than we would expect.
1: No, I watched the uh, the Republicans uh, dance on this issue, uh, and uh, it, it's it's an interesting little dance they're doing. Follow me on this. Uh, yes, you talked about uh, John Tester uh, would be advocating for uh, a codification of Roe on a federal level, so that uh, would not be this existential threat regarding abortion. Uh, And uh, even though the Supreme Court ruling in Dobbs said it should be left up to the states, uh, when I see a Republican uh, running in a state where his party's or her party's abortion uh, stances are a jeopardy, they will almost always say, I'm not for any kind of federal codification one way or another. I just believe it should be left to the states. And then I'm, I'm running for a statewide federal office, so this is not even an issue that affects me. You follow me? That's how – that's kind of like what Ron DeSantis is trying to to go right now. As a, as a governor, a very restrictive uh, abortion law uh, that he passed, but as a presidential candidate, he's saying, well, it's really a state issue. So I'm running for president. It doesn't affect me. You follow me? That's a – Interesting game that the Republicans are playing on this issue. A guy like John Tester, I think Brown and Ohio would be the same, will be uh, pushing it in a dir- different direction. Your thoughts?
2: That could work. The problem is that they kind of gave the game away when Lindsey Graham was pushing his 15-week abortion ban bill. And so when you're a Republican Senate candidate up on the debate stage, if I'm John Tester and I get to ask him one question, I would say, you know, if you're in the Senate. And they're pushing through this Lindsey Graham 15 week abortion bill. How are you going to vote on that bill? And they'll have to kind of stammer through because now you're, you're caught in that trap. Like, do you support a federal ban or do you not? And that can apply to the presidential candidates too. Ron DeSantis. If this Lindsey Graham bill was sent to your desk, would you sign this or would you veto it? Cause you said that you don't support a federal ban that they, they, they're kind of tying themselves in knots on this issue. They're, they're the dog that caught the car. You know, they've caught the car now. They don't know what to do with it. And that's causing internal fractures within the party among members who don't necessarily know the best way to go about it. There, You've got the French folks who are just going for like total bans or as restrictive as possible the six week bans, things like that. And then you've got some of your old stalwart Republicans who don't really care that much about this issue. Like, I don't think that Mitch McConnell actually cares about this issue that much. He just weaponizes it to turn out Republican voters in his state and in other states too. But he doesn't personally care one way or the other. Now he has to argue this case in his cor- uh, his corner of the world about what approach to take. So it's, it's really causing a lot of issues within the party in terms of divisions. And I think that we can capitalize on that because Democrats are very united on their position on this, that there need to be reasonable, uh, regulations in place that allow for people to get access to abortion. I think Democrats are fairly united. So being united and capitalizing on the divides within the Republican party, I think are key to winning next year.
1: Absolutely. And I'll tell you another, a Republican who doesn't care about this issue, uh, no matter what he says, Donald Trump, (laughs) (laughs) I have, uh, (laughs) the notion that Donald Trump, uh, cares about, uh, uh, abortion that cares about the fetus uh, the unborn fetus it's just so, so preposterous uh that this man who spent most of his adult life bragging about his sexual escapades and probably has paid for more than one abortion uh would care about this issue is absolutely ridiculous uh but you know he's got MAGA to follow him off the cliff on everything else so they're going to follow him off the cliff on this one before we leave this uh Texas. Just go back to Texas. We'll be following up on this uh, a lot. I mean, if Texas flips to blue, it's. I don't see it. There's no way Republicans can win in 2024. So would you say the Democrats have a chance to win the Texas and the Senate race, uh, presuming already is running against Cruz? Are you just talking about the Senate race? But I just want to make this clear. Or are you also talking about the presidential?
2: I'm also talking about presidential, it's the the narrowing of the divide between the parties in Texas has been very dramatic. A decade ago, you know, I'm, I'm just reading online forums at the time and people are speculating like, you know, when do we think Texas is going to turn blue? And the answer I kept seeing over and over again back in the early 2010s was 2028 or 2032. That was where most of the guesses were. But the reasons for it were very different than they are today because people were assuming that old emerging democratic majority framework where a large racially diverse coalition comes up and leads Democrats to victory statewide. What we saw in 2020 is that a lot of Latino voters actually swung heavily Republican, uh, especially in the Southern parts of the state throughout the Rio Grande Valley, while a lot of white suburban areas uh, throughout the Dallas, Fort Worth Metro, the Houston Metro, Austin, San Antonio, those areas swung dramatically to the left because those areas are predominantly college-educated white voters. And we've seen this trend, not just at the Texas level or at the national level, but at the global level where college-educated people are shifting more toward liberal leaning parties and uh, lesser educated people are moving toward more conservative and populist parties. So as those trends continue, that's been fueling a lot of our growth That's helped us flip a lot of congressional seats like the one that Colin Allred holds right now, that's now allowing him to run for Senate. Mm -hmm. So as those suburban trends continue, I think that Biden is in a very good position to invest tens of millions of dollars into the state that he might not have otherwise done. And he needs to because the Senate is so critical to actually getting his agenda delivered so that he can confirm members of his cabinet, confirm judges to the courts. So he has to have the Senate in mind when he's making investments in where to play. So Texas and Ohio, like even if Ohio goes Republican at the presidential level, Biden still needs to be getting to, you know, 46, 47, 48% so that it's a high enough floor for Sherrod Brown to work off of. Because If if Biden's only getting 40% in Ohio, Sherrod Brown doesn't stand a chance and there goes his whole agenda. So the Senate dynamic of it has to go into some consideration with presidential investments as well
1: all right uh and let's uh you mentioned biden let's talk a little bit about biden uh we had a brief conversation before we went in the air and you said some interesting things uh people tend to look at biden the vulnerabilities of biden the fact that uh, he's so old he'll be the oldest uh well, I think he is currently the oldest president we've ever had. Uh, he fell <laughs> about a week ago, and uh, the right wing just made a big deal about that one. This is a notion there that uh, he's somehow or other impaired uh, mentally. Uh, is this like a running joke uh, by uh, a MAGA. Uh, do you see any strengths in Joe Biden as we head into 2024?
2: You know, I saw a poll a while back, many months ago, they were asking folks, do you want Joe Biden to run for the Democratic nomination again? And they broke it down by age bracket. And in the 18 to 29 crowd fall, only 5% of Democrats wanted to see Joe Biden run again. And I think I count myself among those 5%. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of stand out there. So I think that he has a lot of assets to his candidacy. In terms of the sandbag falling thing, like, you know, who, who among us hasn't? You know fallen and looked foolish at some point so i i thought he was fine from that but i think that he's one of the most patient presidents we've ever had by design nobody has ever waited to be president as long as he has he spent half a century he got to the senate when he was 30 years old and he's he's coming up on his 80s here he's literally spent half a century in politics working up to this moment he has outlasted all of his peers he has more knowledge of the federal government than just about anybody in federal elected office at this point so with that comes a great deal of wisdom and patience and knowing how important the long game is over the petty squabbles of the day and i think that patience was critical to his success with this recent debt ceiling negotiation if folks weren't following it back during the obama years like that was such a worse fight probably because it stretched all the way out to august you know we're here in june and it's all settled but like biden knows how to play the game better than just about anybody else you don't make it you know half a century in federal politics where it is so cutthroat you know everybody's left on the side of the road He, he ran three different presidential campaigns he kept losing and losing until he got there because he was patient he knew how to play the long game so i think that he really understands the party, he understands where it's moving, he understands his place within it. And I think he rightly sees himself as a competent driver to get us from point A to point B to be a transitional president, as he said. And I think that the party is better off for having him at this very turbulent time. You know, there's there's so much chaos, there's so many unprecedented events happening right now, in that sometimes our country really benefits from having Older, wiser people like him at the helm to help guide us along the way to get through these kinds of situations. I'm going to ask
1: you a very obvious question, but I'd love to hear your, uh, your response. You just pointed out all the positives for uh, people to be for Biden uh, running uh, at the helm of the Democratic Party. And then you mentioned that uh, only 5% of people in your age bracket, 18 to 29, believe he should be the nominee or want him to be the nominee. Why do you think there's such strong opposition to Joe Biden among young voters?
2: It's tough to say exactly. I guess I need to think more on it because one of my inclinations would be that there is some degree of ageism going on here. And you think about like, you know, Bernie Sanders isn't that much younger and, you know, he's he's very popular with young people. So it's tough to say exactly, I think, that there's a perception that because he's not kind of going out of his way a lot of the time to, um, posture, I guess, to like say things a certain way toward, toward younger people that maybe he's not as in touch with the concerns of younger people. I don't think that's necessarily true because one of the most important aspects of being president is being good at delegating tasks, specifically being smart enough to know, like, I need X, Y, and Z kind of people around me, and we're going to find those people, and I'm going to have them be responsible for these certain tasks, and I'm going to facilitate. Like politicians are facilitators of information. That's the most important thing they do. So I think that maybe there's just not an appreciation. Maybe it just needs to be messaged better. Um, But I think that it, it kind of goes back to my thought that Biden is much more substance over style. He's not really concerned about the day to day. Perceptions of him or how people feel. He's worried about, like, are we delivering on this policy that I'm trying to work on over here? And, you know, I I think that in time, I think people will better appreciate his presence, kind of like how Truman was, where Truman was very unpopular in his day. But as time went on, historians ranked him as one of the greatest. I think that he's supporting a lot of policies that are going to benefit a lot of younger people like me in the long run. And I think that he's using his wisdom that he's acquired over a lifetime for good causes that are furthering the country so i i don't know if there's really much to move the needle on that front but there's not really anybody else to rally behind like when you ask people like well you don't want biden to run who do you want to run and they kind of scratch their head and like "Well, you know maybe one of the old people from four years ago will try to run them again but it's like you already tried that and it didn't work so yeah
1: i uh I have many that's probably a whole show about uh why young people don't like uh biden uh but I'll just put it this way there's a lot of uh nihilism in American politics these days and um I see it that play here in chicago uh, a lot uh and it's it, it explains to a certain degree why voting uh turnout is so low uh and I do believe Republicans feed that. So I think a key strategy that the Republican Party follows um, is to uh, project this notion uh, that there's no point in voting, that uh, all, no matter who you vote for, they'll break their promises. They won't deliver. There's a lot of truth to that anyway, so it's not really that hard a message to get forth, uh, Andrew. Uh, and I think that uh, has taken hold to a large degree among uh, younger voters. I absolutely believe that. Uh, There's no difference in any of them. In fact, I think that part of Trump's appeal is he's so utterly insane that he becomes like a comic figure. So if you don't believe in the system at all, if you don't believe that it will deliver for you in any way, if you don't believe there's any meaningful reason to vote one way or another, then it's not that much of a leap to vote for Donald Trump on the grounds that he's the most entertaining, batshit crazy uh, of the candidates. And at least it'll be fun to watch. That's my thought. You can think about that for a while. You had any reaction to that before I move on to the next topic?
2: Yeah, I guess I would note, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, I think, had a lot of appeal to younger voters in this last presidential primary. They both projected this image that, like, they are progressive fighters, that they're they're fighting for progressive causes that young people are energized by. And that there is there's a certain positivity, I guess, in that, They're projecting an idea for a better world. But I do think there was a little bit of nihilism that crept into both of those campaigns that I might be wrong, but maybe it didn't come across super well to older voters who felt that maybe this is going to be too radical of a shift. Maybe it's going to rock the boat too much, because I know that a lot of older like, you know, some of my parents, friends who are Democrats, like they did not like Bernie Sanders. They didn't really care for Warren either. and. When you look back at a candidate like Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, their campaigns were just pure optimism, hope, and change. You know, simple slogans like that. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of Clinton's theme song. What was Clinton's theme song? Oh, uh, don't stop. Oh, I, don't, I, I don't really get it. I'm going to
1: have it in my head for the next uh, <laughs> uh, that Fleetwood Mac
2: song. Uh, don't, stop yeah, yeah, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Like always be looking for a brighter future. Like when, when Democrats really tap into that vibe that things are getting better because we're the party in power and like we're, we're, we're the happy warriors. Any, any good progressive movement has to have as happy warriors. People who just project like a confident happiness that makes people feel good. Like when people feel good, they're more motivated to do something productive. So I think that um, Biden kind of gets there. But it feels very defensive, I think, that there's this kind of fascist vanguard on the move in the country and I'm the stalwart to stop them. Um, Maybe not necessarily like a a happy brigade that's going to, you know, wheelbarrow right over them. So I think channeling into a kind of progressive optimism is critical. And I'll I'll say that to J.B. Pritzker's benefit, um, because I think he probably has presidential aspirations. Um, I think that he can really bridge that divide between the Warren Sanders wing and the Obama wing and try to build like this um, confident, happy warrior progressivism. I I think he can really take the mantle of that. I think other candidates like Gretchen Whitmer or uh, Raphael Warnock or even Kamala Harris herself Uh, I think that they all have a potential to capture kind of that um, happiness that we're all missing in our lives right now. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how that shapes up in the coming years. But I think that if Democrats tap into that with their candidates and we focus on that messaging, uh, we have to strike the right balance. But I think if we focus on that, that that is an important way out of the nihilism that we've found ourselves in.
1: All right. We'll close with Wisconsin uh, and the whole uh, issue of redistricting. And uh, we could spend a whole show, obviously, in the congressional uh, races and the, the, the struggle for Democrats to uh, retake Congress. But so much of that, it comes down to gerrymandering and uh, drawing of boundaries. And uh, you had an interesting point you raised to me uh, before we did the show about Wisconsin in the fight ahead in wisconsin and
2: so why don't you take this opportunity to share with our listeners yes there are going to be a lot of redistricting fights over the next year changing the house map in a bunch of different states for various reasons one that people played a direct role in changing the trajectory of was wisconsin in april i think a lot of people may have seen there was a very high stakes state supreme court election in wisconsin where a conservative Judge or a justice was retiring and there was a vacancy. And the more liberal leaning candidate ended up winning the state by about 10 or 11 points, which in the modern days is decidedly a blowout in Wisconsin. It was a humiliating loss for the conservative candidate. And because of that victory, liberals now have a four to three majority on the state Supreme Court for the first time in living memory, like an outright progressive majority. Because of that, Wisconsin has, what many have argued, the most gerrymandered congressional and state legislative districts in the entire country. In 2018, Democrats got like 53% of the vote in legislative races, but they only got like 36 of the 99 state assembly seats. is completely mismatched from the will of the public. So uh, there's probably going to be a lawsuit in the coming months to overturn the legislative and the congressional seats to make them fair and to give Democrats more of a chance to compete in the state and flip some seats that have been outside of their reach. At the congressional level, currently Democrats hold two of the congressional seats and Republicans hold six, even though it's a 50-50 state. So the odds are that there's going to be a lawsuit over uh, the state constitution. There's a free and fair election clause in a lot of state constitutions throughout the country that the Democrats have used successfully in other states like Pennsylvania and their state Supreme Court to argue that partisan gerrymandering is denying voters the right to free and fair elections. And these maps have to be fixed, um, adjusted in a way that allows for better competition and better uh, partisan swinging back and forth. So there's a good chance that if the lawsuit is successful, Democrats will be able to compete for two additional congressional seats, that there might be a 4-4 split in the state going forward.
1: Yeah, and uh, that, of course, has ramifications on who controls uh, the House, uh, Democrats or Republicans. So the lesson there, ladies and gentlemen, uh, is that down ballot uh, races really do matter. Everything matters, Uh, but that uh, Supreme Court seats Despite all the power Supreme Courts have, it's considered a down-ballot uh, election. The Dems didn't treat it as such in 2022. They were victorious. Now have a 4-3 uh, edge in the Supreme Court in the state of Wisconsin, and therefore can have an implication in the redistricting lawsuits, uh, the makeup of these new districts, and who goes to Washington, and ultimately who controls congress it's all related for too long republicans have seen those connections and relationships and have acted on them and democrats have been asleep going back to the theme of the whole entire show they woke up in wisconsin in 20 that's why they hate woke so much andrew do you follow what i'm saying because when democrats are asleep (laughs) it's easy for republicans to operate but just think about it i said this to you in passing before we went on the air This is how long it takes to undo the impact of gerrymandering. The state of Wisconsin was gerrymandered, I think it was 2011, correct? 2011, around there, 2012, something like that. Uh, Here we are 12 years later, and it finally looks like there might be a break. But it took 12 years, Andrew, go ahead.
2: And that damage is long lasting because Wisconsin and Minnesota are often compared to each other on all sorts of metrics. They used to be right in contention with each other. But in the last decade, Wisconsin's economy has stagnated as the state government has, you know, given tax breaks to Foxconn to build factories to nowhere, not doing anything to attract like good business to the state. While Minnesota, they're their human development, their, their business development, their, their political kind it's just, it's gone through the roof. And Minnesota is attracting a lot of people away from Wisconsin who otherwise might stay there. So that, that damage can't just be undone. There is, there is a scarring from it. uh, That's, that's going to reverberate through, the decades along the state's development. And the Supreme Court race just kind of goes back to my point at the start, that donating to these down ballot races is so critical, because oftentimes they're overlooked, they don't have the resources that they need to succeed. But when we make the investments in these down ballot races, what this this race raised millions of dollars, we can really run up the score. And this Supreme Court victory, it can help fix the legislative and then congressional situation, they could strike down that 1831 abortion law, uh, they can put in protections in place about how uh, elections are conducted in the state. So just as that damage can have long lasting ramifications, critical victories at certain moments in time, like the Supreme Court race, can have positive long lasting impacts that can carry on for years down the line.
1: All right, we'll leave it there, uh, because if I go any further, we're taking a deeper dive uh, into Congress, and we've run out of time anyway, so we'll just have to bring you back, all right, Andrew?
2: Absolutely. I'm always happy to come back.
1: All right. Andrew Ellison is his name and the uh, Steve Kornacki of the Ben Jarowski show. He knows his stuff as he displayed. Uh, I will have to take a deep dive a little while later. Right? Andrew on congressional races as well. I want to thank Andrew Ellison for being in the show. I also want to thank producer Chris doing an outstanding job. Uh, very trying times with my goofy computer, which died on me, me folks, at least twice. Uh, producer Chris, another outstanding job. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Take care, everybody.
0: And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more all at chicagoreader.com. Follow the Ben Jarofsky show on Instagram, at Benny J show, and like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky show on your favorite streaming and podcasting
2: platforms.